Good afternoon, everyone. For the, some of you listening today, this information will not necessarily be new, but I hope it will be a useful review. We're aiming this at a much wider audience as well, and for most people in the world, this information is completely unknown. So we hope to help enlighten those who are interested in being enlightened. When God begins something in this present age of mankind, he nearly always starts small. In Matthew 13, verse 33, Jesus Christ compared God's kingdom to both a mustard seed and to leaven. Both analogies start with something small that expands into something much larger. The biblical record shows that in early human history, only a small number of people were willing to obey and follow God's ways. There were only a few faithful mentioned in the Bible in the early centuries and even millennia of mankind's existence. There were a few such as Abel, Enoch, and Noah who responded to the revelation of God's plan of salvation. We read in Hebrews 11, beginning with verse four, by faith Abel, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found. That does not mean he didn't die, by the way. It just means that, that God took him to escape, evidently, people who were seeking his death but he was not found because God had taken him, as it says in the book of Genesis, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So here are very few people mentioned before the flood who were faithful. They weren't necessarily the only ones, but there were a few mentioned here. And we don't know how many others there might've been, but evidently not very many. And of course, when Noah built the ark, it was only he and his family that were saved out of the flood because no one else was interested in obeying God out of that pre-flood world in that generation. After the great flood of Noah's time, God called and worked with Abraham and his wife, Sarah, of God's obedient people of those times. Hebrews 11 and verse 13 says that they all died in faith. And that includes Enoch, by the way. They all died in faith with the sure knowledge that they would gain promises of godly faith, which includes eternal life. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's in John 8, beginning with verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. To exercise faith in God implies that we abide in his word. Everyone who claims to be a disciple of Christ 
or who claims to be, in other words, a Christian, is a Christian indeed only if he or she abides in Christ's word. To abide in Christ's word, to hold it fast, to keep it, to live by it, that's what it means to abide in Christ's word. The biblical scholar A.T. Robertson comments on this statement in the book of John, quote, continuance in the word teaching proves the sincerity or insincerity of the profession. It is the acid test of life, end quote. In other words, one can profess to be a Christian, but the proof of the sincerity or the, the authenticity of that profession is determined by whether one is abiding in Christ's word or not. Just claiming to be a Christian is not enough to make one a genuine Christian. God promises eternal life to those who are of the true faith and who remain faithful. As we read in John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's plan of salvation from the very beginning of time was and is to grant eternal life to those human beings willing to abide in his word and to abide in his faith. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his life to pay for our sins, and in doing so, he made the promise of eternal life possible for us. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 8, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now that's from the New King James Version translation. Here's how the same verse, the, the same passage is translated in the concordant version, which is often more accurate in some of the nuances of the Greek. And it says here, God who saves us and calls us, this has to do with the way the Greek is translated into the English tenses, past tense or present tense, it says in this translation, who saves us, not who saved us, because salvation is an ongoing process. It goes on to say, who saves us and calls us with a holy calling, not in, accord, not in accord with our acts, but in accord with his own purpose and the grace which is given to us in Christ Jesus before time aeonian, and the meaning of that is simply that this purpose that is spoken of here, the purpose of salvation for human beings, is an eternal purpose. It, it is something that is eternal as God is eternal, and it is something that has been in existence since before time as we know it began, that is, before the universe began. And we 
we as human beings, that's how we measure time, is by the movements of the heavenly bodies. And they're, in, in one sense, depends on how one defines time, but in one sense, there was no time, as we know it, before the existence of the, before the universe came into existence. In Matthew 25, verse 34, we read, the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this is something that has been a reality from the time the, the world, again, as we know it, was established, actually before that, as we read. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Speaking of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and how this was something that God had thought out and prepared for before the foundation of the world. This is a plan of salvation that, that includes human beings, that every human being is eligible to partake of, depending on his willingness to yield to God, and it has been present from the beginning, from before the beginning of human existence. The blueprint of the holy days would reveal in due time to human beings the plan God had designed from the very beginning. These festival observances were not just a cosmic afterthought. With Abraham's family, we see God beginning to reveal the good news about his plan of salvation. We read in Galatians 3 and verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying in you all the nations shall be blessed. Notice that the gospel was preached to Abraham and that it includes salvation, not just for one small segment of mankind, but for the Gentiles. And both Israelites and Gentiles have, from the beginning, been included in what God has planned in terms of salvation for mankind. In Genesis 26 and verse 3, Genesis 26 and verse 3, or beginning with verse 3, are identified specific blessings that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. The Creator pledged to bestow these blessings, including the promise to his son Isaac that, quote, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Notice the promise was that in Abraham's seed and the seed of Isaac and Jacob, and those to follow, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham's faith and obedience is why the Bible calls him the friend of God and the father of all those who believe. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, speaking of those who are truly his disciples. The real disciples of Jesus do not live under deception and ignorance. 
They live in light of the truth. They know the truth. And what is truth? Jesus said God's word is truth in John 17, verse 17. God's word includes his commandments. Psalm 119, verse 151. Psalm 119, verse 151. The psalmist wrote, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. All the commandments of God are truth. And Jesus himself is the very personification, the embodiment of truth. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus obeyed the will of God. He obeyed the commandments, which are truth. In fact, he obeyed them perfectly. We read in John 6, verse 38, John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so he lived a perfect life of obedience without sin. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 21, 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Notice we're to follow Christ's steps, and that's not only in suffering, but in other ways as well, as we'll discuss later. It says, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. One who is truly a disciple of Jesus then has a sound knowledge of God's truth revealed through Christ's word and his spirit. And as one obeys the things God reveals, he gains more understanding, he grows in understanding because as we read in Psalm 111 and verse 10, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Such an individual strives to live in harmony with the scriptures and seeks to fulfill God's commandments in the way he lives his life. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. A genuine disciple of Jesus Christ knows the commandments of God are life to him or her. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning with verse 15. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. In other words, God has given us two paths to choose from. One path leading to life and good, the other to death and evil. He went on to say in verse 16, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. He's speaking to the people of Israel, of course. And he said in verse 17, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over Jordan to 
go in and possess, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. The truth, obedience to the commandments are to us a matter of life and death. And we need to understand that clearly. A true disciple of Jesus Christ has come to understand that God's holy days are to be kept because God commands us to observe them. He believes that obeying God's instructions is the right thing to do. God told Abraham that his descendants would grow into a mighty nation. In Genesis 18 and verse 18, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. End quote. The promised line of blessed descendants would come through and be named after Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And after settling in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, eventually became slaves. As we read in Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 13, Exodus 1, verse 13, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Or as it says in the English Standard Version, the same passage of Scripture is translated this way, quote, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The story of God's deliverance of ancient Israel from their bondage in Egypt and his deliverance of people today from their bondage to sin is part of the intricately woven fabric of his festivals. In due time, the Creator set in motion a series of events involving festival observances that illustrating His great plan led to the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt. When Moses and his brother Aaron appeared before Pharaoh, they told the Egyptian ruler that the God of Israel commanded, quote, this is from Exodus 5 verse 1, Exodus 5 verse 1, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, end quote. Moses and Aaron had earlier called for the elders of Israel to assemble and had explained to them God's plan to deliver them. As we read in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 16, Exodus 3 and verse 16, God said to Moses and Aaron, go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God performed miracles through these two men in the sight of the people, as we read in Exodus chapter 4, beginning with verse 29. 
Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of the people. So after delivering this message to the people of Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt, that God intended to deliver them from their slavery and take them to a land flowing with milk and honey as an inheritance, and then seeing the signs that were made available to them through God's power, the Israelites, although they later faltered, believed God would deliver them, at least for a short time. And so we read in Exodus 4 and verse 31, Exodus 4 and verse 31, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. It was God's intention to deliver the people of Israel from bondage and to fulfill his covenant with Abraham as he had promised. We read in Exodus 6, beginning with verse 2, Exodus 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, or as it is in the Hebrew, Yahweh, or the eternal, the ever-living one, which is a name generally used in God's covenant relationship with his people. By name, my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of the, their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments and I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So God had promised to deliver these enslaved people from their slavery and to give them the land which they had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their heritage. What followed was the first Passover, which marked the passing over of the death angel for those covered by the blood of the Passover sacrifice. God had commanded the Israelites to slay lambs for the Passover and to put the blood of the lambs on their doors, the doorposts and the lentils of their doors. And he told them prior to the passing over of the death angel, he said in Exodus 12, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, 
and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And then on the heels of the Passover came the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the Israelites who had been enslaved, picturing their liberation from slavery. As we read in Exodus 12, verse 17, Exodus 12, verse 17, so you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Later, the New Testament church kept these same days as a reminder of Christians' deliverance through Jesus Christ. For example, Paul told members of the church at Corinth, both Jews and Gentiles, that is, non-Israelites, that they should put out leaven, symbolic of sin, because, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The lambs sacrificed in Egypt were a precursor, were a figure, a type of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for mankind. In the next verse, Paul said to this mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, therefore, let us keep the feast, referring to the same festival that God had instituted in ancient Israel many centuries before. Remember, this was in the New Testament church. This was a church that was actually located in a Gentile city, Corinth, consisting mostly of Greeks, but also some Jews and probably other Gentiles besides Greeks because this was a port city. And no doubt there were people of various nationalities or lines of descent there living in that city at the time. And they were all instructed to keep the feast from his childhood, Jesus observed the feast days with his parents. In Luke 2 and verse 41, Luke 2 and verse 41, it says of Christ, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, end quote. And other scriptures show that they took Jesus with them. John writes of Jesus continuing to observe God's annual feasts as an adult during his ministry. In John 2 and verse 23, John 2 and verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many people believed in his name when, he saw the sign, when they saw the signs which he did. So he was keeping the feast of the Passover on that occasion. In John 4 and verse 45, John 4 and verse 45, it says, when he, meaning Jesus, came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. In one of the most instructive examples, we find that Jesus risked his personal safety to attend the, the annual Feast of Tabernacles. In John chapter 7 and verse 1, John 7 and verse 1, it says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And I might interject here, some wonder why John used the term the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. And it probably has to do with the fact that John wrote his gospel near the end of the first century A.D., and there were already 
a number of people claiming that it was no longer necessary for Christians to keep these feasts, or and, and also Jews had come under persecution and were often persecuted and hated within the Roman Empire at the time. And many people wanted nothing to do with the Jews or the so-called Jewish feasts. Now the feasts that the Jews kept were not really the Jews' feasts, they were the feasts of God. But John refers to them as the Jews' feasts who make it perfectly clear what feasts he was talking about. Not some other feasts, but the feasts that the Jews had kept in following the word of God for generations. John 7 and verse 10, in this same context of the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, when his, that is Jesus' brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And then it says in verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now remember, this was in the context of leaders among the Jews wanting to put Jesus to death. And there he was right in their midst in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. But then we're told in the beginning of verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters, or living, uh, rivers of living waters, is in the New King James. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing him would re receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the spectacular display of the Holy Spirit had not occurred yet. It doesn't mean that no one had had God's Spirit before this, but it means that this uh, revealing of the Holy Spirit that occurred on the Feast of Pentecost had not occurred at that time. But following Jesus' death and resurrection, it was on one of the annual holy days, the Feast of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit was manifested in a most spectacular way. And many among those keeping the feast in Jerusalem were converted upon hearing the gospel message on that day preached by the apostles. As we read in Acts chapter two, beginning in the first one. Acts two and verse one, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, the, they, that is the apostles, were all of one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them, a, uh, to them divided tongues as of fire and one set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or other languages. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, at this time, the dispersion of the Jews had occurred when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple and burnt Jerusalem to the ground and took most of the Jews captive in the sixth century BC and uh, they had been scattered far and wide. 
Eventually they returned, some of them returned to Jerusalem, but most of the Jewish people remained scattered even when Jesus' ministry was occurring in the what's, what we know now as the first century AD. And many of the Jews could speak Hebrew, but many of them had other languages that, were, that they were more familiar with. Some of them probably didn't speak Hebrew at all, probably quite a number of them. And so, but there were there, some of them gathered from various nations speaking different languages. And it says, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Notice that this miracle of tongues had to do with speaking in languages that were common languages that were comprehensible but were different languages. And it was not so much a gift of speaking in foreign languages perhaps as it was a gift of hearing what was being said in the ears of the hearers who were hearing them speak in their own languages. And this is speaking of the apostles who were doing the speaking, preaching the message of the gospel. And it says, they were all amazed and marveled saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So the message was spoken by the apostles to this crowd gathered in the temple, people who were of Jewish descent or who had become proselytized, and they were hearing them speak in their own languages. And they heard the message of the gospel, and it says in verse 37, as they heard the message of the apostles, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, this is on the day of Pentecost, about 3000 souls were added to them. About 3000 people gathered there in Jerusalem for the feast were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. We find later that the Apostle Paul was at Ephesus, which is a city, in, a Greek city in Asia Minor, and was asked by some of the people of the local synagogue to stay for a while. And it says in Acts 18, verse 21, Acts 18, verse 21, this is the Apostle Paul. But he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing and he sailed from Ephesus. Now, notice what Paul said here. He said, I must be, by all means keep 
this coming feast in Jerusalem. This would be one of God's annual festivals. It doesn't say what feast it was that Paul intended to keep in Jerusalem on that occasion, but it does demonstrate that Paul was keeping God's feast during his ministry. Now, later, at a later time, Paul had been in Greece, but it is written of Paul and his companions in Acts 20 and verse 6, Acts 20 and verse 6, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So they were, they were in Greece, in the city of Philippi, and after the days of unleavened bread, it is noted, they left from there. So here's evidence of Paul keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread as he instructed the church to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is speaking of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and also in this context the Passover as well. And then there are more instructions about that in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians as well. But on this occasion in Acts 20, they continued their journey after they left Philippi and went to Troas, which I believe is on the coast of, of Asia Minor, and they continued their journey. And in verse 16 of Acts 20, it says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a major center of uh, for the church at that time. That's where Paul had spent three and a half years of his ministry, or three years, or more than three years, I believe it was. And uh, it was a uh, major city in Asia Minor. And for him not to stop on his way there would have been significant. But he decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem to keep the feast of Pentecost that year in Jerusalem. The biblical evidence reveals that Jesus kept God's holy days and that the 12 apostles and the early church did the same. As Christians, we must follow the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles in matters of doctrine and faith. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So we are to imitate Jesus Christ and so far as the apostles such as Paul imitated Jesus Christ, we're to imitate them. Ultimately, of course, it means we're imitating Jesus Christ. But there were things that the apostles did in following Jesus Christ that we are to imitate, one of those things is the keeping of the Sabbath and God's festivals. Paul wrote to Christians in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So notice that Paul said the Christians in Thessalonica were followers of the apostles and those who served with them directly under them in ministering to the people and of the Lord. And because they were following that example, they became themselves examples to others. Now the overwhelming evidence acknowledged by all competent Bible scholars also shows that the New Testament church kept the weekly Sabbath, not only the annual holy days and festivals, but the weekly Sabbath as well. And there are many Bible scholars, and as I said, any competent Bible scholar would admit this, there are many from various denominations of professing Christians who admit that the New Testament church kept the weekly Sabbath and other festivals, even though they themselves, these scholars, most of them, do not do that. They don't follow that example. They don't follow that practice that is commanded in the scripture and that we have the examples of it being followed. But Jesus Christ, the apostles in the New Testament church kept God's holy days. The feasts of God have deep meaning concerning God's purpose and plan of salvation for mankind and how he intends to accomplish it, that is, his plan of salvation. The feasts reveal God's plan of salvation and how he will accomplish it. Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 16, Colossians 2 and verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. In other words, what he's saying here is that the Sabbath days, the holy days have prophetic significance. They indeed do have prophetic significance because they reveal how, how God will work out his plan through time. They are a shadow, or as the Greek word skia means, which is translated shadow here, it, it, can, it can mean a shadow, it can mean a sketch, or an outline of things to come. The holy days reveal the unveiling of, God, of God's plan as it is being worked out in the course of time. And the Greek word ski is defined in Thayer's lexicon means, and I quote here, a shadow, in other words, an image cast by an object and representing the form of that object as opposed to some of the thing itself, hence equivalent to a sketch, outline, adumbration, which basically means more or less the same thing. So if one wants to really understand God and the plan he is working out, then he needs to begin keeping the festivals that God commands in the Bible to be kept. God expects us and requires us to obey his commandments, which includes keeping the festivals that he commanded. As they have been from the very beginning, the festivals of God are very relevant to every human being today although few know it. In understanding the holy days and their meaning, 
you will be privileged to have precious knowledge that someday will be taught to everyone. 